the first step in resolving a personal crisis and the first step in resolving a national crisis is admit that you're in a crisis. And if you're so optimistic that you say, ah, this is a bag of tail, we don't have to worry about it. Yes, that optimism is going to get in your way. At the same time, one should not be overcome by pessimism and say, it's hopeless, I can't do anything. This illustrates the need for honest self-appraisal, to recognize that there's a crisis, but to accept responsibility, to recognize that the crisis may be soluble if you do something about it. Jared Diamond's 1997 book, Guns, Germs and Steel, is one of the most influential non-fiction books of our time, explaining how and why civilizations rise and or fall substantially as a consequence of environmental factors, rather than any inherent superiorities of particular peoples or cultures. Guns, Germs and Steel won a Pulitzer Prize and a sack full of other trophies, influenced presidents and prime ministers, or was at least referred to by presidents and prime ministers trying to sound clever, sold by the skipload and inspired legions of imitators attempting to apply grand theories of human progress to popular history. It was a tough act to follow, though Jared Diamond has not stopped trying. His latest book, Upheaval, How Nations Cope with Crisis and Change, takes a similarly sweeping view of history and wonders if lessons learned the hard way by nations can be applied to the travails of individuals. I'm Andrew Muller, and Jared Diamond joined me at Midori House for The Big Interview. Jared, welcome to The Big Interview. Nice to be back in the UK. Well, in the UK where you are, and you can probably see where I'm going with this, you arrive here having written a book about how nations deal with crises. And on that front, welcome to the United Kingdom. How does it strike you, having recently touched down again, that the United Kingdom is dealing with its current crisis? A year or two ago, I would have said that the United States has much worse problems today, more acute problems today, and that Britain has issues. But I must say, seeing what's going on now, I think that the UK's issues are as acute, perhaps more so than those of the United States. And that's going some because our issues are bad enough. Well, that's got us off to a thoroughly cheerful start. But the book does look at seven countries which have had or experienced or come through crises of one sort or another. Is there anything in there, and we will get to them in detail shortly, but is there anything in there that any current British policymaker might be able to adapt to Britain's current circumstances? Absolutely. Two very simple things are honest self-appraisal, which seems to me almost completely deficient um, today on the part of the politicians. And secondly, the importance of learning from models. If you can have a referendum, one should look to other countries that have referenda. In the U.S., our states of Wisconsin, California, Italy has referenda. There are ways to do them badly and there are ways to do them well. It is surprising that Britain having a referendum should not look to other countries for experience and how to run them and how not to do them badly. But having got this far and having obviously made a series of poor decisions and then executed them poorly, is there a way out of this in any, not necessarily just the examples you cite in the book, but in in all of human history? I, I guess the question becomes, is it actually harder, paradoxically, to solve a problem when it's self-inflicted? 
interesting question. When it's self-inflicted, there are countries that had problems inflicted from the outside. When Finland was invaded by the Soviet Union on the night of November 30, 1939, that's a pretty pretty serious problem. In the case of this self-inflicted problem of the UK, if you can have a second referendum, the first one was done bad. It violated all the rules of how to run a referendum. The second one, you could learn, you could look to models of Italy and California and Wisconsin. Some elementary rules are that there should be a bar for voter turnout. If 20% of the voters turn out, then it's not worth counting. There should also be a bar for the percentage of the vote. In California, our referenda that have big fiscal consequences have a bar that they require a supermajority, not 50.1%, but 60% or two-thirds vote. And similarly in Italy, the big referenda on divorce and abortion, which are sensible issues about which to vote in a referendum, uh, there has to be a voter turnout of whatever percent, 70 percent of the electorate, and there has to be 70 percent voting for the issue. So if you could have a second referendum, at least have the rules learn from Italy and the U.S. on how to do it. Let's look in, in greater detail at your new book, Upheaval. I wanted to ask, first of all, whether you think it fits anywhere in a, a lineage with your previous books. I was thinking perhaps of it as a sequel to Collapse from 2005, in that you know, having presented the problems, here are some potential solutions. Or, or, or do you not see your, your collected works as having a reference to each other like that? I'm smiling and repressing a, a laugh as you ask that question because people... <laughs> I, I never tell whether that's a good sign or not. It's a good sign. <laughs> no, it's a, it's a very good question. People often ask, Jared, how does your book fit into the series of Collapse and Guns, Germs, and Steel? Are they a trilogy? Are they a sequence? Absolutely not. Each of my books is unrelated to other books. Each of my books is on whatever I was interested in at the time. But all of my books, Guns, Germs, Steel, Collapse, Third Chimpanzee, they're on issues that have been on my mind for four or 50 years. And once I've got one book out of the way and cleaned that out of the way, what is the next big issue? This issue of dealing with crises for nations, it's been on my mind ever since I lived in the UK in the late 50s and ever since I visited Finland and Germany. But also my wife, Marie, is a clinical psychologist with a specialty in personal crises. Marie was doing that in 1982. And so ever since 1982, I've been thinking about Marie's outcome predictors for how people deal with the familiar personal crises of marital breakdowns and jobs and so on. And I've been thinking about how they map against national crises. So once I did my previous book, The World Until Yesterday, and the decks were clear, the next thing that bubbled up was crises. Well, this, of course, is another strand of the book, the idea that there is some commonality between national and personal crises and therefore possibly some commonality in solutions to national or personal crises. But how solid is that relationship? Are there literally times at which we could respond to being sacked or dumped by asking ourselves, what would Japan have done in 1839? Or or is it more in a kind of general approach to problem solving? It's the latter, not the former. If you are fired from your job as a result of this terrible interview, <laughs> do, do, do not look to Japan in 1850. Instead, look to Marie Co- my wife, Marie Cohen's checklist of a dozen factors, which are 
predictors for outcomes of personal crises. First of all, do you acknowledge that you're in a crisis, in, in a crisis as a result of having been sacked? If you deny it, you're not going to solve it. Um, having been sacked, do you accept responsibility or do you just say it's because of those bad people over there? If you blame it on others and get swamped with self-pity, you're not going to take any corrective action. Are you honest in appraising what you do well and you should continue to do and what you didn't do well that got you sacked? All right. Do you get help from friends, emotional material help? Do you look to friends for models of how to deal with your crisis? So it's those outcome predictors and not what Meiji Japan did that you should look to if you get sacked. There's seven countries you look at in detail, and, and part of the reason you do that, as you say in the book, that these are all countries that you know well personally. You, you've either lived there or spent a lot of time there. You speak some of the languages, and they are Finland, Japan, Chile, Indonesia, Germany, Australia, and the United States. I was interested to remove one from that list to talk about the, the concept of the book, and I was, I'm going to pick inevitably Australia, which is where I come from myself. So in, in the case of Australia, this is the po- in the post-World War II period you're writing about. What were the, the specific measures, as you saw it, that Australia took to get itself out of that post-World War II interregnum? Perhaps the single most important one is reconfiguration of national identity. When I first visited Australia in 1964... I was stunned, having lived in the UK, to feel that Australia was more British than Britain. Australia was like Britain 15 years previously. Australians were a group of loyal British subjects who happened to be out there near Asia. Until relatively recently, Australia hadn't even appointed its own ambassadors. Australia didn't have its own foreign policy. You were too loyal. And from the 1960s onwards, Australians gradually weaned themselves away from this identity with Britain. There were several things that did it. The arrival of immigrants who were not British, the Eastern European immigrants, and then the start of arrival of Asian immigrants. The fact that Australia's trade was now increasingly with Asia and the trade was no no longer overwhelmingly with the UK. The fact that the UK, from the 19, in fact, after the fall of Singapore, the UK was no longer the protector of Australia. Australia's security was more involved with the United States. And then, to put it bluntly, that, that when Australia's major trade partner was Japan, it no longer flew to say, we like to trade with you, but there's no way that you are going to immigrate to our country. That just didn't fly. And so from 64 onwards, Australia slowly transformed. Um, there was a recognition under Gough Whitlam. It's not that Gough Whitlam changed a lot, but within 19 days, he put a lot of things through and he said, this is not a change. This is recognition of what has already happened. There's a point towards the end of the book where you talk about the value to any country in crisis of its core values or its core national values, as you put it. Of course, individuals have those as well. But that was why I was interested in the Australian example, because as you correctly demonstrate in the book and as you correctly delineated there, Australia's national identity has changed beyond recognition, in in my view, by some margin for the better, but there's a much more expansive idea of what it is to be an Australian than there was as what I'd like to think as recently as when I was born, for example. But to you then, a national identity and core national values the same thing? Because clearly national identity can change. Can core values change as well and nations' values or are they at some level irreducible? Core values can change for nations as for 
for individuals. An example is Italy, the country with the Pope. Many decades ago, the leading political party of Italy was the Christian Democratic Party, and most Italians went to church on Sunday. The last five years I've been teaching in Italy at Rome Social Science University. Nowadays, 10% of Italians are in church on Sunday, so the, the core value of religion has been declining out of sight in Italy. It's still part of Italy's cultural values, but religion is not something that Italians practice, and they certainly do not listen to the Pope for advice about abortion and divorce. The nations you cite in the book, and again, to remind the listeners, are Finland, Japan, Chile, Indonesia, Germany, Australia, the United States. Do you get the sense that any of them or all of them were if you like, doomed to succeed? Was there a transcendence of their crisis inevitable? Were there points at which it could have gone sensationally wrong for any of them if somebody had made a different decision or indeed if some completely random fluke had sent history in another direction? Could it have gone wrong? Yes. Japan, when Japan, after centuries of isolation, was forcibly opened to the outside world by the arrival of an American fleet, Commodore Perry's fleet. What is Japan going to do? There was debate in Japan. There were Japanese who said, resist the West, and they tried to, and they got shelled out of existence. After a struggle, the military governor of Japan, the shogun, was overthrown. But for a while, it was touch and go. The end result was that Japan devised a new form of government. It westernized as fast as possible to build up the military strength to face the West. But in the first 13 years, it tried to fight the West. And it failed in those fights and got bombarded. Yes, Japan could have gone wrong in the, the first decade. So there's one example. Let's think of another example where it could go wrong today. Okay. Uh, the last several chapters of my book, after six chapters on crises that have unfolded, I have a chapter on the problems of Japan today, two chapters on the problems of the U.S. today and the problems of the world today. And all of, the, all of those could go wrong, particularly the United States, what the, the United States' problems of decline in political compromise, decline in really being a democracy, growing social, socioeconomic inequality. It is unclear whether the United States is going to have a happy ending. And we'll see within the next five or 10 years, pretty fast. We will come back to that one. But in, in terms of the, the prescriptions that are outlined in the book, do you think they are universally applicable? Are there, for examples, if you are a policymaker in some, you know, proverbially benighted country like Somalia or Haiti, reading your book, is there anything that they can usefully import or learn from Finland or Germany or Australia? Honesty to begin with, recognising that you've got a crisis, recognising that you have to do something about it instead of blaming other countries. I've just come from Ireland, which 50 years ago was a relatively poor country. Ireland visiting there now for the second time, it struck me that the, the Irish have been very good at dealing with their terrible history. The things that the British did to Ireland were not nice, and it would have been easy for the Irish to get wrapped up in self-pity and blaming, but they didn't. Looking at other countries, Germany after World War II eventually did not get wrapped up in self-pity and blaming. Japan after World War II has gotten wrapped up in self-pity and blaming. So yes, these are lessons that can be learned. 
it does prompt a question that I also wanted to ask, was whether there's anything ever to be said for denial, basically. Your, your, your book is very big on the idea of an honest accounting with, with reality and, and dealing with the facts as they are. But where Ireland's concerned in particular, and it sounds like one of those quotes that people like to think Churchill probably said, but I'm not sure he ever really did, but the quip is that about Irish history that the English should learn it and the Irish should forget it. Is there ever anything to be said for a nation just to kind of collectively decide, as some families do, for example, let's just never speak of this? Yes, there is. And again, that's a really interesting question. Nations that have gone through torture and civil war and civil genocide. There are nations such as Sierra Leone and South Africa and Mozambique and so on. Often it's said what's required is truth and reconciliation commissions. What turns out is that truth and reconciliation commissions are good for the country, but they're bad, they're painful for the individual, for an individual to have to confront the person who killed in your presence your son. That's really painful. And individuals might be better being spared that, but it is good for the country to be able to get through that. Again, Chile is an example. I have a chapter on Chile where the military government tortured people in utterly horrible ways. Chile has had a Truth and Reconciliation Commission of sorts. They publish the names of, of the dead and the tortured, and some of the torturers have been sent to prison. But Chile never, never forced or never pushed torture victims to confront the people who torture them. That is just too painful. Is there, I mean, there's also a kind of, and I, I'm sure there's a quote from Irish history about this as well. There definitely is, in fact. The idea is that, or the, the old Republican joke was that England's crisis is Ireland's opportunity. But is every crisis by definition an opportunity or potentially an opportunity? Is there is there always room for optimism? The, the, the reason that I shuddered, I have friends whose children were killed. Screw the opportunity. That's just terrible. I have friends, uh, I have friends who, a friend whose sister was burned to death in a fire. And I have friend, my father had, had friends who, whose spouses were burned to death in a fire. And it was so horrible that the person jumped out the window to, to kill himself. No, it's not the case that all crises have a happy ending from which you can learn. Uh, you, know, you know in your personal experience there are terrible things that can happen to you. Uh, yes, some bad things you can learn from them, but you'd rather learn those things in other ways, ways other than having your child killed. When you approach the the national questions of, of, of how nations respond to their history, how frustrating is it to you that so much history just isn't known or understood, quite often by, you know, educated people in educated nations? There does strike me as frequently an absolutely shocking lack of appreciation of, of basic facts, which weirdly seems to be getting worse despite the increased availability of information. I'd rephrase what you say, which is very interesting. Instead of saying that history is not known, yes, history is known, but so many people refuse to read and refuse to learn from it. An example is that, that small countries that are the neighbors of large countries have a special problem. And this was discussed already by the great Greek historian Thucydides 2,400 years ago. He discussed a small island, Milos, that was faced with a powerful Athenian empire. And Milos did not take the problems of the, the Athenians very seriously. And the end result was that the Melians got 
all the men were killed and the, all the women and children were sold into slavery. The message of that is that small countries next to big countries should be rather careful. Finland now is very careful in dealing with the Soviet, with Russia, but Ukraine was not careful in dealing with Russia. And if, the, if Ukrainian leaders had read Thucydides or if Ukrainian leaders one year from now were to read Jared Diamond's book, they would not make the mistakes that they made a couple of years ago. Which the message was be very careful in dealing with a powerful country, understand to look at things from their point of view and do what you have to to avoid having what happened to the Ukraine happen. It's far from impossible, of course, that leaders of Ukraine and other countries will read this book because people who make decisions of this sort do now read your books. And I was wondering if that inculcated any measure of, of self-consciousness when you're writing them. It's like, you know, as, as you put these things together, I, I think for most journalists and most pontificators, you know, myself included, it's, it's, it's easy enough to to write without having to reckon on that burden because who the hell's paying attention to anything, I think. But is there ever any part of you that's concerned while you're writing these things down, God, what if somebody pays attention to this and it all goes horribly wrong? It doesn't change my approach because I wrote the book because I'm really interested in it, but I, I know from experience my book is being translated into Ukrainian. <laughs> so, yes, I think the leaders of... And I talk about the Ukraine in my book, so I expect that a year from now the leaders of the Ukraine, if they so choose, will look at my book. And the leaders, My book has also been translated into Lithuanian. Lithuania is next door to Russia, so Lithuania has, has issues. I know that my book has been read by... Bill Clinton and by Tony Blair and the chief of staff of Governor Jeb Bush. So a great thing about writing history today, as opposed to Thucydides, when Thucydides wrote 2,400 years ago, there might have been 500 manuscripts of his book out there. Today, when you write a book and people are interested in it, there are millions of copies out there. And so I can get to more people, far more people today than Thucydides could 2,400 years ago. But Thucydides, nevertheless, has some major advantages <laughs> over me, frankly. <laughs> We're coming towards the end of our time, which means we, we do need to uh, address the crisis currently besetting the United States. And you don't offer any predictions in the book, spoiler alert, as to how this will turn out. And that's that's probably quite wise because I think everything most people have predicted about the last three or four years in the United States has turned out to be flat wrong. But earlier in this interview, you were making the point that a, a, a good outcome is not any more guaranteed for the United States than it is anywhere else, which is kind of an unusual thing to hear any American saying, because in my own sort of fairly extensive at this point travels in America, the, the one thing that, if there's one thing that I think unites such a disparate and diverse country, and it's probably the thing I like most about the United States, it is its optimism, that it, it will be all right, that whatever crisis there is can be confronted and dealt with or skirted around. Do you think that this particular period is is genuinely different? Because it's, it's not like tumult is new to the United States. Yes, we have had tumult in the past, and it's always tempting to say, when I look back on the decades of my life, every decade we said at the time, this is the worst that it's ever been. I mean, the decade of the Cuban Missile Crisis, the decade after Pearl Harbor, World War II, it did seem the worst ever. Knowing that, I would nevertheless say the current decade is the worst ever because there is a real risk that American democracy could end in the next half dozen years, not through a military coup d'etat, as in Chile, but through a continuation of what's happening now, namely increasing restrictions 
on the right of Americans to register to vote imposed by the party in power locally or statewide because in the United States, I know in Germany and Italy, to vote, you get an automatic piece of paper from the government. In the United States, you have to register. Registration is controlled by the local and state electoral officials. And increasingly, they have been making it difficult for citizens likely to vote for the other candidate to vote. For example, incredibly, the recent election for governor of Georgia, the winning candidate was a Republican. Now, amazingly, the Republican candidate for governor of Georgia was also the the chief state electoral official for the state of Georgia. Hard to see what could go wrong there. (laughs) How on earth is a Democrat came very close to getting elected, but there was undoubtedly a push from the gentleman in full honesty adopting measures to promote his candidacy. Does there come a point then, and this can be applied, I guess, to the United States as to any given individual at which optimism can become a handicap? You could, is there an argument that the, the line between optimism and delusion is a, at times a perilously thin one? Yes, of course it is. Optimism, if it means denial that you're in a crisis, or optimism if it means saying, yeah, we have problems, but they're not serious problems. The first step in resolving a personal crisis and the first step in resolving a national crisis is admit that you're in a crisis. And if you're so optimistic that you say, ah, this is a bagatelle, we don't have to worry about it. Yes, that optimism is going to get in your way. At the same time, one should not be overcome by pessimism and say, it's hopeless, I can't do anything. This illustrates the need for honest self-appraisal, to recognize that there's a crisis, but to accept responsibility, to recognize that the crisis may be soluble if you do something about it. Continuing then on the subject of the United States current crisis, and and this is possibly where I am myself crossing that line from optimism to delusion, my sense so far of it has been that the Trump presidency is an arguably overdue stress test for America's institutions. And it strikes me that all things considered, they're actually holding up pretty well. Do you think there's anything to that line of analysis? They're holding up better than I feared in October 2018 because we've just been through midterm elections. We have midterm elections every two years and then presidential elections every four years. In the midterm elections, if the Republicans had gained control of the lower house as well as the Senate, then they would have controlled all branches of the, of the, the government. In fact, the, the Democrats gained control of the House. That I took to be an optimistic sign, not because I love the Democrats, but because at this stage, too many Republicans are Trump supporters. And Trump, Trump is not, I wouldn't say he's the worst president in American history. He's the only evil president we've had in our history. We've had poor presidents before. We're having a presidential election coming up in 2020. It is up for grabs what's going to happen. Will the Democrats succeed in uniting around a strong candidate, or will they be torn by internecine fighting that would let Trump go in for another term? If Trump gets another term, then he will have not four, but probably five or six of the nine seats on the Supreme Court. So I I would say another four years of Trump would be a serious threat to American democracy. I cannot predict how Americans will vote in November of next year. And just as an extra final thought, the 
upheaval con- considers means of problem solving and crisis resolution for individuals and nations. Obviously, at a couple of levels, we face global crises. Can those same lessons be upscaled to an entire planet? Because if it's hard enough getting one person thinking straight about their own problems, and it's an extraordinary task to get a nation of millions thinking in the same constructive way about their problems, can you actually do that for a vast, teeming, disparate planet such as ours before the problem is so apparent that it's too late to do anything about it. Thank you for asking that. Yes, yes, yes. Because the next last chapter in my book <laughs> is on the problems of the world, the major problems of the world, applying Marie's dozen criteria, some of which make you feel pessimistic. The world is not going to get help or models out there from the Andromeda Nebula. But the fact well, is... We have to hope not, frankly. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's true. But the world does have a track record in the last... 50 years of solving really thorny world problems, such as delineating coastal overlapping economic zones, such as establishing a framework for mining the seafloor, such as getting CFCs out of the atmosphere. So yes, I have a whole chapter on the problems of the world to end on a bagatelle instead of on something serious, and I have grounds for cautious optimism. So I would say the chances are 51% that we'll have a happy ending. Well, on that note, Jared Diamond, thank you for joining us. My thanks to Jared Diamond. His new book, Upheaval, How Nations Cope with Crisis and Change, is published by Alan Lane and out now. The big interview was produced by Yolin Goffan and edited by Cassie Galpin. I'm Andrew Muller. Thanks very much for listening. <laughs>